Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! like to do is if you could, uh, you're going to turn to the people around you, and the goal is really just to make sure that everyone's included. Go ahead and say your name. I'd love for you to share what kind of Christmas traditions. We're going to look at some of the different ways that uh, traditions and kind of history plays a role in our understanding of Jesus and Scripture, and so I'm interested for you when it comes to Christian uh, Christmas, uh, what kind of Christmas traditions did you have growing up? So again, just turn to the people around you, say your name, and go ahead and share. Thanks. What was some aspect of the Christmas traditions that you were familiar with wherever, wherever you grew up? Church on Christmas Eve, yeah. Church at 5.30 in the morning. 5.30 in the morning and four Christmas trees? Both of those statements are a lot. 5.30 a.m. church and four Christmas trees. Real Christmas trees? I just have, I, I have lots of questions, but I'm going to ask that one. All fake. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Cinnamon rolls, yeah, absolutely, I love that. Mom's eggnog, spiced or, was it spiked or, kid friendly, okay, just checking. Didn't know how mom got through Christmas, it's just, yeah. It's a wonderful life, yeah. Die hard? There aren't, like, this is a, community of curiosity and diversity, but Die Hard is a Christmas movie, and that is one thing that we will strongly. I, I do want to let you know, in that, I don't know what the, obviously, I don't know what the experience is like for you to turn and talk to one another, but being up here and getting to watch, the amount of smiles and joy that's happening, and just kind of the, the buzz and the sound from being in the whole room, it's amazing. I hope you get a, like a little piece of that amazing and not just all like, oh no, I don't like this at all. And I get that. That's okay too. But it's really beautiful to see everyone talking and sharing and smiling and kind of celebrating that. It's beautiful. Um, the reason why I wanted you to kind of get in touch with traditions and things that you grew up with is this morning as we look at the Bible and we look at this story of the life of Jesus, it might for you, be a bit like um, walking downstairs on Christmas morning and only seeing three instead of four Christmas trees. It might be showing up and being like, actually, there, are, there is no cinnamon rolls. We're not doing that this year. Instead, we have biscuits or whatever the replacement. And there's a, a dissonance that you can feel when there's something that you've always understood it one way and there's another interpretation that I think we all initially reject we're like cats getting into a bath. Like, no, 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 no. Not even necessarily that the thing that we did before was so good, but it was so known. And there's something really beautiful and comforting about things that are known. I think traditions are beautiful and wonderful. But I, I just want to acknowledge as we talk about it, it might create some tension for you. And you know what? That's okay. That's good. Part of the reason why we're doing this is we just came, we, we, we're in a message series now, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, which is a story about the life of Jesus, and we got into it from a message series called Biblioidolatry. And Biblioidolatry was, basically, we want to look at what has been our relationship with the Bible, largely in the United States and Western Christianity for the last 100, 150 years. 
And, and one of the reasons for that is we just wanted to say that our experience of the Bible that because of our place in history feels normative forever, and the story we tell about the ways in which we interpret the Bible as, uh, as an example, being inerrant, meaning it contains no errors, that everything is in there. This is actually our manual for life. If you have any questions about science or relationships or what job you should get, go to the Bible and it will tell you that this is uh, a more recent understanding of what the Bible is. And in fact, some ways of interpreting the Bible in that way can inhibit its impact in our lives and the way we understand it. And so this morning, uh, and the reason why we did all of that is because we wanted to give you the freedom to say that as you read the Bible, the ways in which the people that wrote it would have understood it is that many interpretations of what was happening were welcomed. In fact, they had religious leaders during the time of Jesus, which were rabbis, the term we'll look at this morning that their interpretation of the Bible was actually referred to as their yoke, in the same way that you kind of put a yoke on, on oxen to, to pull something. That the rabbi's interpretation of the Bible was called their yoke, and you would go be a student of their understanding of the Bible, and it wasn't like everyone had the same one. There were many different understandings, interpretations of the Bible, and that wasn't a threat. That was beautiful. And so as we look at it this morning, we're going to look at some different interpretations. We're going to be centering our story in Mark 9 this morning, starting in verse 14. So if you have a Bible with you on a device or maybe even an actual copy of a Bible, that would be amazing. Yeah, Anne. Uh, go ahead and open it up. We'll look at Mark 9. If you don't, no worries. We'll have it on the screen. Starting in Mark 9, 14, it says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you. Come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and then came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So I have created a list, and an incomplete list, of the things that I do not understand about that story that we just read together. So if you're like, I, I've noted a question while you were reading that, and I really hope that you answer it. So sorry, out of luck. Let's look at them. One spirit possession... 
I really don't know what to do with that, and especially in our age and society, where we have normed certain people and certain behaviors and how the body's supposed to work. And there's been a lot of work within Christianity to say that anybody that has an experience of the world or acts in a different way is demon-possessed, or there's some sort of impure spirit within them that is creating this. I don't know what to do with that, and that makes me very, very uncomfortable. The second thing is that when Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes, that line punches me in the gut every time. I I went on a trip once to uh, Kenya, and we worked in this kind of medical intervention. And a part of this medical tent was when people entered, everyone got prayed for. That whatever they were seeking medical attention for, we would pray for a miraculous healing Because if that happened, you wouldn't need to go through the rest of the medical tent. And there was another person who was doing this that claimed that they had seen uh, 11 people, 12 people the day before miraculously healed. And I was going to go in and be a part of this team that prayed. And I remember thinking, I do not want to do this. Please don't make it dependent on me with whether or not you receive medical attention because that feels too scary. And even if we think you're miraculously healed, could we still have the doctors give a once-over just to make sure? And yet, I didn't want to be the limiter to something miraculous happening. Not for my sake, but for their sake. If something miraculous could happen, if they could see something that had been plaguing them or someone they loved changed in an instant, then I didn't want to get in the way. And when we were going there, I prayed as fervently as I have ever prayed. Because if the understanding is, is this person prayed for all these people and 11 people were healed, and I prayed for the same amount of people the next day and nobody was healed, whose fault is that? You could only attribute it to my lack of belief. And so I worked my hardest to believe and to believe as earnestly and truthfully as I could. I'd love to tell you because of that, lots of people were healed, but they weren't. And I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with this thing. I believe that miraculous things can happen in the world. I've had very few experiences of it. The last thing I don't know what to do with is when Jesus at the end says, this kind only comes out by prayer. That still messes with me, that somehow the disciples were trying some non-prayer method of just like, hey, if, if it would be cool, come on, Ian Pure Spirit, come out. And they're like, no, you have to say, dear God, we want this impure Spirit to come out. What, what, what aspect, what mechanism were they doing wrong that wouldn't allow their thing to work, but Jesus' thing clearly worked. Why didn't they have it? I don't know. And a lot of times when we read through scriptures, we either kind of ignore these parts we don't know, or we explain them to the point that we can make sense of them. And as human beings, we are excellent at creating narratives that make our world make sense. If you want to make this make sense, you can. I'm not even saying that you shouldn't. But it's also okay to have it not make sense and to let it just sit. Because what I found is the more things I'm willing to let sit and not make sense, the more interesting it gets. 
the more it sits with me. And there are insights that I get on the other side of that that I never would have had if I had short-circuited the process. And the other thing is when you read stories where you have a number of things that say, these don't make sense, I don't know what to do with them, you can actually still sit with it and say, okay, well, what parts of the story do make sense? What part are speaking to me? What is resonant? As I read through this, this passage and I got ready for this week, I had one thought that just on com- coming, kept on coming back to me over and over again. And it was an imaginary moment where the father and the son who was healed, they said he was a boy, is now a grown man. And they're sitting at a table together. And the father says, I did not take you to Jesus to be healed of an impure spirit to have you throw your life away at art school. I don't understand what you're doing. This is why that kept coming back to me. Because in so many of these miraculous stories, and the way we tell stories culturally, is we have a problem, and then we have a conflict, and then we have a resolution, and then ta-da, it's over. That's where our movies end, that's where our stories end, that's where our TV shows end, unless it's Breaking Bad. Where we're getting away from that. But there's a lot of our formula, and the reason why those other narratives stick with us so much is because they're breaking the rules. It has to end with happily ever after. Do you really believe it was just happily ever after for this boy and their father forever? They never had a fight. There was never a moment where the father was annoyed or the son was annoyed. That there wasn't all kinds of problems in figuring out, okay, what do I do with my life now? And I imagine that there were things that they experienced that this one central moment in experience actually didn't change everything forever. And in having belief and understanding, wait, who is God and how is God working in the world? It wasn't that you can be like, well, we were healed that one time, and so that kind of settles it. We're good. I think they had all kinds of doubts. I think they had all kinds of questions. And it makes me wonder, especially as we read through, uh, the commentary we read through this is Ched Myers. And his reading of this story is this allegorical. It's not literal. And I thought, okay, what is that? How would that work? And the thing that kept on sticking with me is we don't follow Jesus because he did miracles. Now, some of you are like, no, that's literally the reason why I'm here. I am follow Jesus because of the miracles. Let me just press into that a little bit. If you follow Jesus because of his miracles, just he did miraculous things, let's try this thought experiment. Jesus encounters someone who's blind and he heals them. And everyone's amazed. And he's like, yeah, that's not all. You couldn't see before? Get ready for four eyes. Bam, I'm going to put two eyes in the back of your head. And then he walked around. He's like, oh, this guy doesn't have a hand that works. Here's three extra arms. What if Jesus went around and did miraculous things but was kind of cruel about it? Would you still commit your life to this person, to this God? All the miraculous, maybe even more miraculous things, but kind of dismissive of the people that were being healed and kind of cruel about the way that he performed the miracles. Would you commit your life to this person? Still death on a cross, still everything else. Would you wear the cross and sing love songs to this Jesus? I think the miracles are there to expose something, but it can actually be a really helpful exercise to understand these miraculous stories and to say, I'm going to suspend for a moment that this miraculous thing happened 
And what is, is there something still true here in this story? Because I think the reason why we follow Jesus isn't that he did miraculous things, it's how he did the miraculous things. That his service was always on behalf of those who had nothing. It wasn't for himself to bolster his power, and it wasn't to make the powerful more powerful. That Jesus was sharing this idea of a new kingdom where every person in life had value and it belonged. And it was the kind of existence that spoke to people that were using their power to keep others out, and it directly challenged them. And it challenged the systems that they were a part of. I think that is what connects us to Jesus. And so to that end, when it comes to, did these miraculous things happen or did they not happen? I don't know. And neither do you. And I don't think that we need to know one way or the other. There's this kind of reactionary school of Christian thought that's like, let's just take all the, the miracles are the problem. So let's just say none of the miracles were actually miraculous. There were all these other explanations for them. Or this is just allegory or story. And I have to be honest, I think that's going too far. I'm not interested in disproving that these things are miracles. I'm just not interested in proving to myself or to everyone else that these miraculous things definitely did happen. I'm interested in seeing what does the story say whether or not these miraculous things happen. So let's look at some context from this story. And a lot of this is spoken into, I mentioned before, Ched Myers has this commentary on the Gospel of Mark called Binding the Strongman. And it's kind of informed with where he goes with it. Let's zoom out of this story for a little bit. So we have Jesus walking in. People are arguing. There's a father. His son can't be healed and Jesus heals him. But what happened before that? If we go back to Mark 7, Jesus uh, feeds 4,000 people, and that's actually 4,000 men because they would have been counted. That's kind of the, the patriarchal system. So it's probably much more like 8 to 10 or even more thousand people were there. They had no food. Bread miraculously appears. They pass it around, and people are fed. After that, Jesus and his disciples get in the boats to go the other way, and the disciples realize, oh, no, we forgot to grab the bread. Like, just a really practical, like, wait, I thought you were going to grab the extra loaves of bread so we'd have some food for our boat ride. And they're like, I thought you were going to grab it. And it turns out they only have one loaf of bread. Jesus points to the piece of bread, and he said, hey, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of King Herod. You know, any kind of yeast is this thing that spreads all throughout the dough to, to ultimately help it rise. Beware of this. And then he walks away, and the disciples are like, gosh, Jesus is really mad that we only brought one piece of bread. And Jesus says, what? Were you not there just before this, where I made 10,000 people got fed from one piece of bread, and now you're worried that you didn't bring enough bread? Are you not seeing what's going on here? The larger theme, which I think we're going to see is, there is a lie about how the world works that is told by the Pharisees and King Herod about how you grab power and how you hold on to power. You have to be aware of it because it's impacting your lives. It's impacting your whole worldview and how you think things should work. And you are working against your own self-interest to protect it. But they can't see it. See, later in that next story, when it gets into chapter 8, and this is a pivotal part in Mark. Mark is 16 chapters. This is directly in the, the middle. Before this, it's been miracle, 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 miracle. After this, there's one more miracle. That's the one we just looked at, and no more until the end of the story. 
Jesus says, who do you say I am? And they're like, some people say Elijah, who's this great prophet from the Old Testament. Some say John the Baptist. And Jesus is like, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the prophesied king who will come and set the Israelite people free. And Jesus says, bingo, you got it. Directly after that, Jesus said, okay, so I'm going to go suffer and die. They're going to crucify me, and they're going to put me in the grave, and then I'll come back to you. And Peter pulls him aside, and he's like, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you heard that thing where I just said you're the Messiah, but that's not how the Messiah works. I don't know what Messiah prophecy you read, but you dying is definitely not a part of the plan. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Basically, you don't understand what kind of Messiah I've come to be. It's a direct rebuke of who Peter thinks he is supposed to be. Okay? After that, Jesus gets them all back together and says, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. Now, we hear that today, and they're like, yeah, I have a daily to-do list, and I do take that cross on every day in my following and pursuit of Jesus. For them, this was not a metaphor This was a literal instrument of death and population control by the Roman government. That Jesus is the Messiah in saying that the road to following me, your liberation, comes through suffering. No one understood it. And we shouldn't roll our eyes that they didn't get it. Because we don't get it either. And we definitely wouldn't have got it if we were around back then. The next thing that happens is one of my favorite stories of the Bible. It's the transfiguration where Jesus takes a couple of his closest followers, Peter, James, and John. They go up to the mountainside, and there, while Jesus is before them, Jesus just appears with Elijah and Moses, and they are all in dazzling white clothing. Their appearance changes. And immediately, Peter says something, which I had never caught before. Peter says, Rabbi, this is so good. We should build structures. Now, I'd caught the structures part before, but I'd never caught that the person that just called him Messiah changes his name to what? Rabbi. I'm not so sure about the Messiah thing anymore, but you're still very much my teacher. Teacher, this is really, really good. We should stay here. Jesus doesn't rebuke him, but a voice from heaven comes and says something very interesting. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He's telling you how this is working. You're not listening. That Jesus doesn't have to do that. And one of the reasons why I love that story, it's one of my favorite stories of Jesus is the transfiguration, is I think we have moments all the time or we want our heart desires or we create the story that if I just saw something miraculous, it would be so amazing and I could camp out my life there forever and I would know. And what does Jesus say? Nope. No, we don't build houses here. We experience it. We're fully present. But now we're going to go down off the mountain. And they go down off the mountain to this encounter. What Ched Myers brings up is that if you understood this not as a story that is describing it, but if you understood it metaphorically, who does the father and the son represent other than all of the disciples and followers of Jesus? that there is something within us that is in the way of understanding and receiving Jesus' message. 
And there is a deep desire to address this thing within us that cannot receive the message, that cannot be present to who Jesus actually is. And what is Jesus looking for? Is Jesus looking for more Peters who say, you're the Messiah, I absolutely nailed it, I got it, and I've solidly located the story? No. What brings about the healing? I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. They're both there. Jesus isn't saying, okay, well, they can both be there, but you better put a bridle and saddle on that unbelief. And it's always got to be here while your belief is up here. It can exist, but proportionally, it always needs to exist as less than the belief part of you. Jesus says, no, you know what I can roll with right now is some curiosity. Somebody asking some questions about my identity and who I am and what I'm trying to do in the world. What is really hard to move forward with is people who know, who think they know who I am and what I'm here to do and what I'm trying to do. That's actually consistently getting in the way of where we're trying to go. And that this is the moment that brings about this incredible healing. I don't know that the healing happened or it didn't happen. I'm, I'm not particularly interested at this stage. What I am interested is that I think one of the truly miraculous things that Jesus did is came to the earth as the most powerful being that ever existed if we take Christianity's claims at face value and never once use that power for his own benefit or for the benefit of people already in power, but instead always saw and utilized it for the people that didn't have it. And so Jesus was inviting us to see the world in a new way, that ultimately this kingdom of God, heaven, the afterlife, the beautiful thing that we should all want to be a part of, it comes through a path of suffering because there's always going to be suffering in addressing systems that hold all the power. If systems hold all the power at the benefit of some and the expense of others, you're not going to confront those systems in yourself and in the world without suffering. That's how it works. And yet, so many of us say, I like Jesus, and, and the appeal of Jesus is swing low, sweet chariot, and a, and a lifetime of just being with God forever, and I get the warm feeling inside of me, and I always be happy. And yet... For kingdom of God to exist here and now, some systems have to be dismantled. Some ways that we enjoy the world and we know the world and where we have the opportunities that we have in the world today come at the expense of someone else. And those systems can't continue to be in the way that this is a part of understanding and seeing who Jesus Christ is. I think we fixate on believe, and do we believe, and do we have enough belief? But what was Jesus inviting us to? To see and to hear. To see and to hear what is already happening, what's already present. This is what I love about church. I couldn't even hope to guess right now about where all of you are living and what you are doing with your weeks. I have no idea. I have some hints. I know what a lot of you do for a living. I can envision kind of how you spend part of your weeks. But what you're actually going through, the things that you're really wrestling with, I have no idea. And yet, we believe that God sees and knows. 
and that God is whispering, maybe sometimes shouting, but definitely speaking into the patterns of your life right here and now, and is inviting all of us to see and to hear, to bring our belief and unbelief, and to see how in our small segment of the world, we can bring about the peaceful thriving of all people. We can participate in this greater work of who God is and what God is up to. So what is it for you? What is Jesus inviting you to see right now? See, a lot of times we come to church and we want to talk about miracles and we want to believe in miracles and we want to see miracles and more miracles and God, show us the miraculous thing that's happening. But wouldn't it be miraculous if the people of God became mobilized to see those that have been marginalized and oppressed have a voice to be seen and to be present in our world maybe for the very first time? That sounds pretty darn miraculous to me. In a world where people are seen and loved, where they are known that they are accepted and that they belong, that sounds revolutionary. That sounds like heaven. So what is it for you? Look, you don't have to sell everything, or maybe you do. You don't have to radically change every part of your life, but there is something for you to start changing in your life. And don't let the fear of changing everything lead you to change nothing. Jesus needed the disciples to see something differently, and he's inviting us to see something differently about our reality here and now. The prayer for myself and for you is that we can start participating in this work. Would you pray with me?